Good morning. My name is Norbert. I'm pastor of the church. If this is your first time, I'd like to welcome you. I'd like to also welcome those who are worshiping with us online and to the rest of us. Welcome. We consider ourselves to be a small church with a big heart, and my prayer is that you will experience that today. Now, we are on the last installment of our series. The, the night, title of our series is The King After God's Own Heart. So in this church, what we do is we preach on a certain text. We call it series, and we expound the Word of God, what God is telling us through the Scriptures. So the phrase, the king after God's own heart, this phrase means a king who rules the kingdom the way God rules the kingdom. The king after God's own heart must be someone who executes the will of God in the kingdom. So we found out that in this series, we're doing 1 Samuel, Saul was a failure, so God replaced him with David. David was then the king. So if we'll just do a quick recap, in chapter 15, God rejected Saul. In chapter 16, God replaced David for Saul. And in chapter 17, God legitimized the kingship of David by David winning against the battle against Goliath. Now, we know Goliath. We know this story very well. David fought Goliath. Chapter 18 opens the question, if there are two kings and there is one throne, and there is one crown, who will sit on the throne? Who will wear the crown? Chapter 18 will tell us if the people will finally recognize the true king in Israel. There can only be one true king. Now, sidebar. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 14. This is the climax to the whole chapter. So if you're reading this as a piece of literary you're looking for the climax because the climax is the key to the message of the sermon or to the message of the text. So the climax of the text in chapter 18, 1 Samuel, is in verse 14. Let me read this to you. It says, And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. This is a very good climax and summary of this whole chapter that David had success because the Lord was with him. Now, before we are even tempted to think that this text is all about success, let me stop you there. The text is not teaching about success. The, the text is not teaching about how to be successful. There are no five steps to complete victory. This is not a text about your best life now. This text is focused on the phrase, the Lord was with him. So if anything else in this chapter about David it's the Lord was with him. Success was simply incidental. It's not the main thing. The presence of God was the whole point in this chapter because for the next 40 years, Saul will be king for 40 years. Although David was already anointed, even at the beginning of the reign of Saul, he will not be the king for the next 40 years. Even though he won the battle against Goliath, he will not sit on the throne. Even though the people sing praises about him, he will not wear the crown. See, success is incidental. The focus of this is encapsulating the phrase, the Lord was with him. Now, as we go through this chapter, I would like to, you to remember a scene. Anyone saw the movie, The Return of the Kings, J.R.R. Tolkien's? Yes? None. None of us. The ring, okay? So there's this scene where Gandalf, Gandalf the Grey, now Gandalf the White, 
enters the hall of ministry. This is the third part to the series of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. So Gandalf the White enters the hall of ministry. It was, it was empty, it was quiet, and there was a figure at the very end of the hall. There's someone sitting on the throne. It was Denethor. Denethor was sitting on the throne. So Gandalf walks towards Denethor. There was an exchange of pleasantries. And Gandalf was about to offer his advice as the wizard. And, and the moment that the name of Aragorn came up, Gandalf said, Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. He calls Denethor the steward. And at this point, Denethor stood up and shouted, The rule of Gondor is mine and no others. You remember that scene? This is very interesting because this is also the tune of 1 Samuel chapter 18. So if you're reading 1 Samuel chapter 18 and you watch the third part series of The Lord of the Rings, this is it. Denethor would not give up the throne. He was not the king. It was Aragorn. So going back to 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 17, David fought Goliath. David was a young boy. Goliath was a giant. It's a mismatch. But the Lord allowed him to win. Now, right after the fight, Jonathan and David became best of friends. Who's Jonathan? Jonathan is the son of the king, Saul. He's the second in the line of succession. He's the Prince William, the heir to the throne of Israel. And yet, they became best friends. And what's interesting here is that Jonathan would give up the right to the throne because he recognized something special in David. And he made a very symbolic act of yielding and giving his pledge of fealty and allegiance. Let me read to you verse 3 and verse 4. It says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So whenever the Bible talks about covenant, there's always an imagery of marriage. You make a promise to each other. So that's why we have rings. The ring is our pledge of allegiance. I, Norbert, give to you my love, Kathleen, etc., etc. The, the pledge of covenant of Jonathan to David is a pledge of allegiance, of fealty. In verse 4, it says, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Everything that he wears at that point, he gave to David. Now, this is interesting because the moment he did that, it became a symbolic act of giving pledge or fealty. Now, this is very interesting with Jonathan. I would rather have one Jonathan in my life as a best friend than have 5,000 Facebook friends whom I don't know. <laughs> Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Do you have anyone in your life who loved you as your own soul? Yes, your wife. Hopefully your spouse or your best friend or your significant other. Jonathan was this. But when he gave up his, his, his armor, his bow, his belt, his sword, it was something else. You see this in the coronation of King Charles. It's recently, about three weeks ago, the King Charles of England was coronated. I saw the, the coronation three times because everything that happened there, everything that words were spoken, images that were displayed, talk about what, what happened in the Bible in 1 Samuel. There was a scene in the coronation of King Charles 
when everything was done, and the Archbishop of Canterbury knelt before him and pledged allegiance. He said, I, Justin, Archbishop of Canterbury, pledge my allegiance to you as King of King Charles and to your successors. It's very interesting. But then right after him, Prince William, the firstborn of King Charles, stood up, went in front of him, knelt before him, even though he was his father, knelt before him, and he said this one, I, William, Prince of Wales, pledge my loyalty to you in faith and truth. I will bear unto you as your liege man of life and limb. The last phrase caught my attention, liege man of life and limb. What does it mean? Liege man of life and limb refers to protecting the king with your own body and with your own life. Prince William gave his loyalty to his own father as a liege man, as a servant. What Jonathan did to David is something similar to this one. Although he was second in line of succession, he yielded his right to the throne and gave his pledge of allegiance to David because he recognized there's something special with David. He's got the anointing of God. He's the next king in Israel. Now, because of the presence of God, David was successful in his battle campaigns. The Bible said he was successful. And so when he returned home from the battle, the women have a song for him. You find that in verse 9, verse 7. It says, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, this Saul is the king, and David his ten thousands more. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. Why? Naturally, because he's king. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they only ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. That means Saul had his eye on David everywhere he go from that day on. He was that happy. He was jealous because David might have the kingdom. So at this point, I want you to think about Gollum. Gollum, the creature who had the ring. And whenever he's alone, he would say, my precious, my ring. I mean, he's consumed by the love for the ring. Saul is in the same way, consumed by his love for the crown. He will not let go, whatever. And this song sealed the deal between David and Saul. You know, before David fought Goliath, he was the favorite of Saul because he was the liar player in the court of Saul. He loved him. And yet, after the battle, when the women sang about the 10,000s, David became his enemy. Now, let's not get distracted to this. The whole issue is about the kingdom. Saul said it himself. The kingdom. Now, his jealousy is focused on who will rule the kingdom. And if we're going to talk about who rules the kingdom, we have to get a better context. There's a bigger context in the story of the Bible about the kingdom. And this story goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That's a long story but the whole concept of kingdom goes back in there. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? Those who are not familiar, in Genesis chapter 3, God created the whole world, Genesis 1 and 2. He created everything. At the very end of creation, day 6, the Bible said it was very good. Everything was perfect. And yet, in the Garden of Eden, God put a man in charge. It was Adam. Adam was in charge. He was like king in the capital. He rules the kingdom of God. And yet there was a serpent that was coiling on the tree. And the serpent deceived Adam. And Adam rebelled and joined the rebellion of the serpent. 
the kingdom of God is at stake. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where there was the first rebellion in the kingdom of God. Adam himself, whom God put in charge, rebelled against God. So God forfeited his rights. God exiled him away from the garden, away from the presence of God. As a result, Adam and Eve were exiled. They were banished from the kingdom. But God gave a, a bit of prophecy. This prophecy talks about the time when God will send someone to reclaim the control of the kingdom. The seed of the woman, according to the prophecy, will crush the serpent's head. But nobody knows. There was no name. There was no title. There was no timeline to where or when the seed of the woman will come who will eventually crush the serpent's head. So the serpent is just waiting at this point. And the kingdom of God is progressing. Now, in the time of Saul and David, who is the seed of the woman? Who will crush the serpent's head? And what will happen at the very, you know, behind all the scenes of chaos in the world? When is God going to take back the control of the kingdom? And I think at this point, Tolkien was on point about his novel on Aragorn and Denethor. Denethor was the steward of the kingdom. He's no king. Aragorn is the descendant of the king. So if you think about Saul, Saul is no king at this point. The Holy Spirit was taken away from Saul. It was now David. David is the legitimate heir to the throne. But Saul will not stop at anything just to give up the crown, just to give up the throne. Now, I want you to transfer that to Jesus Christ because we're talking about David. David is the, is the ancestor of, of Jesus Christ. So when, when we try to tie stories together, we know that the climax of the whole story of the Bible is centered on Jesus Christ. And David is like Jesus. So if you think about the kingdom, if now the serpent rules the kingdom, why did the serpent so easily offer the kingdom to Jesus Christ? What, what am I talking about? See, after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, you remember that? The serpent approached Jesus and brought him to the top of the mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you but bow down and worship me. How can this guy offer the kingdom of God so easily to Jesus Christ? Well, the answer to that is because it was a false offer. It was not really an offer. Why? Because the serpent cannot offer what does not belong to him in the first place. He cannot. His offer would make him the kingmaker. And if Jesus took this offer, he would follow the serpent in the rebellion against God. It was a trick. The offer of Satan to Jesus Christ was a trick. What he really wanted was Jesus to bend the knee and pledge his allegiance on the serpent. Then it becomes still the kingdom of the serpent, not the kingdom of God. But Jesus was very clear on his mission. The moment that he came from the wilderness, he went inside the synagogue, he read the scroll of Isaiah, he said, I'm the anointed son of God. And I came to announce the kingdom of God is here. So he's very clear on his mission. It's about the kingdom of God. So Jesus was not, he, he understood this trick. And he understood that he must fight his way back. And the only way to fight his way back is to reclaim the throne by dying on the cross. And that's what happened in the Gospels. What happened is he paid the price of glory. That's why at the very end of it, 
there's a resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, you know, we celebrate it every year, the resurrection of Jesus. It's one of the most crucial and most important part of the history of the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After the resurrection, what's interesting is that in Matthew 28, before he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples, all authority has been given to me. I mean, authority in what? He was talking about authority in the heaven and on the earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He was talking about the kingdom of God. Now, earlier, he taught his disciples how to pray. How should you pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. The all authority in your prayer that, that refers to the heaven and the earth was given to Jesus Christ. That means Jesus now, after the resurrection, is in charge. That means he is king. Now, now we may be, you know, me, me reading the gospel and not really paying attention, but see, on the cross of Jesus Christ, there was an inscription that says, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Yedorum. Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. But see, Jesus Christ is not just the king of the Jews. Every Jew would pray in the morning and at night, and they would always begin their prayer by, Baruch ata Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam. What does it mean? Praise the Lord. He's the king of the universe. Haolam is the whole universe. Jesus King is the king of the whole universe. That means Jesus Christ was put in charge when he said, all authority has been given to me in all of the heavens and the earth. But that means that it includes the demonic forces of the evil one. It includes all the deceptions that we have to includes even the allegiance of Satan at the very end. What that means is that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of God, the kingdom of God. See, David is just a prototype of Jesus Christ. Though he was king, he was a prototype. Jesus is the ultimate king. And at this point, if you look back to the qualification of Saul, the only qualification of Saul is his height. He was tall. The Bible said he was taller than the rest of the average Israelite. What that means is that Saul looked like a giant. Compared to David, he looked like a giant. Now, I showed you a video two Sundays ago about Yao Ming and Manny Pacquiao. So Yao Ming visited Manny Pacquiao in his fight against uh, Rios. When they stood side by side, Manny Pacquiao was at this height. Interesting. So I was thinking... David and Saul, maybe it's the same thing because probably Saul was seven, seven foot tall and David was just maybe five, six, five, five or five, six, not too tall. Saul resembles the giant that David fought, Goliath. Now, now here's the problem here. David might have defeated the Philistine giant, but he's now in battle against a different kind of giant. A giant who would not let the throne go. Let me read to you verse 10. The next day, harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had spear in his hand. Now, this is scary, to say the least. When we talk about the harmful spirit, um, we're talking about the good guy. Now, I preached on this two Sundays ago, and, and we said that this harmful spirit is not a demon. Why? Because, because there's a definitive uh, preposition from the Lord. 
So this spirit was from the Lord, but it gave problems to Saul. It became a harmful spirit to Saul. But again, this is a good guy. This is not a demon. Now, if you notice the language, the harmful spirit rushed upon Saul, the same phrase, rush upon Saul, is the same thing that happened to David when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. So in contrast, David was anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rushed onto, Saul, onto David. In the same way, because Saul does not have the Holy Spirit anymore, the harmful spirit rushed onto Saul. And the result was he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. This is interesting. The word rave, though, if we use it positively, it's something that means we are happily praising something. So if you go to a restaurant and you happen to like the food, you would go back, tell your friends, and rave about it. Okay, it's positive. But this rave in here, in chapter 18, is, uh, in Hebrew, sounds like a prophecy. He was, he was telling something ecstatic, but it's not, it's not raving about something, but it was, he was more like angry. He was like sort of ecstatically prophesying. Now you remember the first time that Saul as king was anointed, he met a group of prophets and he prophesied. And so whatever happened to Saul at this point, the people understood that he was sort of prophesying like a prophet because they asked, has Saul become a prophet? And so at this point in the palace, you imagine this, Saul was raving, he was talking to himself, he was talking to no one, and he's holding a spear. Bad combination. If you see someone right now who's talking to himself and is angry and is holding a machete, you will call 911, right? What's interesting is that David was playing a liar. Why? Because he's trying to calm down Saul. But it didn't work this time. It didn't work this time. See, if David was an ordinary Israelite, the narrator would not even dare to tell us the story. But David is the anointed king of God. And so what happened then is that Saul wanted to kill David. That's why he was holding the spear. Now, we don't have to guess that because it's in verse 11. It says, And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. I was trying to recreate that in my mind, how David can evade him twice. I mean, if I have, say, I'm, I'm Saul and I have two spear, and I spear, say, and dress once, he would realize that I'm angry at him. But if, if it's David and he evaded twice, that means Saul hurled the spear once and he ducked and then he continued playing the liar <laughs> as if nothing happened and then he waited for another one. <sighs> this is crazy. But the second time he evaded because he understood that Saul wants to kill him. Now think about Jesus again. After 40 days of fasting, he was hungry. And the devil came and said, turn these stones into bread. He gave him a tip how to eat, how to make bread out of stones. Maybe a big baguette, make a big baguette. I don't know. But it didn't work. Jesus will not fall for the trick. And so the next thing he did, he brought Jesus to the top of the mountain. And you know the story. He showed all the kingdoms of the world. He offered the kingdom. And Jesus said no. Third thing he did, he brought Jesus to the top of the temple. It was it was high. And he said to Jesus, jump, because the angels will cut you. You will just have to trust the Father. 
See, if he cannot convince Jesus to join him, he would rather kill Jesus, not according to God's plan. You see, it's the same thing how Satan works within our lives. If Satan cannot convince you, he will kill you. I mean, this is is his M.O. It's from the very beginning. Abel died because his brother Cain connived with the serpent. That was murder. If you cannot get Abel to join him, he would rather kill Abel. This is the M.O. of the enemy. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew better. For the third time, the trick didn't work, and Jesus evaded them three times in the wilderness. Which leads us to the main point of the story. Chapter 18, verses 12 to 16. Let me read this for you. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Now, very interesting. Saul was afraid because the Lord was with him. And he departed from Saul. But Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him second time. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe second time as well. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Now, what, what's happening here? David's success was largely because the Lord was with him. I, we said that at the beginning of the uh, preaching that the center of the story is the Lord is with him, which means without the presence of God, there is really only but chaos and death. I would like you to consider the following examples. You know, Adam and Eve suffered the curse the moment they were kicked out of the garden away from the presence of God. Cain murdered his brother. As a result, God cursed him and again sent him away from the presence of God. So he went further east. That's uh, Genesis chapter 5 and 6. The people in the Tower of Babel, that's Genesis 11, when they attempted to unite against God, they were scattered away from the presence of God through many languages. The people of Israel, that's beginning from Samuel all the way to Malachi, is about the people of Israel going to, the, to Babylon, Babylonia as exiles away from the presence of God. What these stories are telling us is that the absence of the presence of God in our lives means chaos and death. To be away from the presence of God means death, nothing else. What's interesting, think about this one. The Bible began with saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And before, there was nothing but darkness. See, before the presence of God, it's only darkness. It's only chaos. The presence of God means life everlasting. That's the reason why Jesus, when he came, he claimed to be the way, the truth, and life. Have you ever thought why would Jesus say such things? And his claim was very exclusive. He was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, exclusively. I am the only one. Why would he say that? What he's saying is that I am the way, there's no other. Religion is not the way. Trying to be kind is not the way. There's no other means to come to God's presence but through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. And some people would say, I'm so confused. There's so many religions. And all the religions are saying they are the way. They're one of the ways. I remember Oprah on television would say, there are many pathways to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is one of the only pathways to God. It's not true. Jesus claims to be an exclusive way to God. 
And the way is not, and the way is not a method or a place. The way is a person. Jesus is the way. He also said that he is the truth. This is the truth with a capital T. He is the truth. Truth goes beyond facts. See, we are in the world of misinformation and disinformation. We don't know who to trust. But it's Jesus who said, I am the truth. Which means we can trust him. There's only one version of the truth. All others are versions of either subtraction or addition to the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. You see, the deception of the enemy is not entirely false. There is some truth to it, but not entirely true. Listen to Apostle Paul claim Jesus to be the truth. He said in 1 Colossians 16 and 17, he said, For by him, that's Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. By the way, those four words, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, those are talking about spiritual forces in heaven. Those are not kings. Those are not presidents or dictators. You'll find that also in Ephesians 6. What this is saying is that, for by Jesus Christ, everything was created. All things were created through him and for him. And in verse 17, he's before all things. What does it mean he's before all things? He was there prior to creation of everything. And in him, all things hold together. To put it simply, that means Jesus is the answer to all the what, the why, the when, the how, and the why of every question that we have. If you have a question right now that you don't understand why, the question lies in Jesus Christ. He is the answer to that. There are so many things that we cannot figure out right now. Even AI is so bombarded with a lot of questions and cannot cope up. Jesus is the truth. He is the truth. And David understood the importance of the presence of God. He saw it firsthand in Saul. Now we're saying this chapter is centered on the presence of God, to be with the Lord. The Lord was with him. And David understood that. There was a problem though, because long after Saul was dead, he was then king, he committed, he abused his authority, he committed a crime. Now, all we know is that David committed adultery. Is that right? Yes? You know the story, right? But it's not entirely true. David committed two crimes. Not just adultery, he also committed murder. Because he tried to murder the wife of Bathsheba so that he would not found out the truth about the affair between David and Bathsheba. And so he committed murder, he also committed adultery. And he understood that. And when Nathan the prophet confronted him, he was so terrified. He feared the abandonment, that feeling. And he knew that. And so he wrote in Psalm chapter 51, I'm not sure if you have read this, and there's this portion in Psalm 51 that talks about this feeling of abandonment. He said this, Psalm 51 verse 10. He said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from your presence goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. They were cast out from the presence of God because they rebelled against God. And he knew that his sins is a form of rebellion against God. But what about this? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He knew this because 
the Holy Spirit was removed from Saul because of his rebellion. He didn't want to become like Saul, where the Spirit has abandoned him and the harmful spirit would go to him. He feared for his life, and so he wrote this. He learned this lesson the hard way. See, the absence of God is nothing but chaos and death. And this terrible experience of abandonment happened to him when he was already king. See, he felt the absence of God when he's already got everything, all the material stuff that he needs. He got concubines, he got riches, he's the king on the throne. He's, got, he's on top of his career, he's got stuff. And yet he was not happy because the Lord is not with him. That is why in verse 12, it says, Psalm 51, 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, success is not as important as the presence of the Lord. Success is incidental. The presence of the Lord is the primary. That's the main point. My, my daughter was talking to me the other day, and I was explaining. She's four years old, by the way. She's explaining about things, and then she said, that's the point. Daddy, that's the point. <laughs> because that's the way I talked to her. So now she would talk to me. That's the point. See, this restoration of David to the presence of God is best illustrated in the story of the prodigal son. You know this story too. So there's this guy who is second born, but he wanted to be away from his father, so he asked for his inheritance. His, his father gave his inheritance. He went away because he thought that happiness can be found away from his dad. So he spent all his money in wanton living, you know, spending right and left. And then he found out when money's gone that he's not really happy. So he went back to his father. And then he realized that true happiness is with the presence of his father. In the same way, David understood that the presence of God is the more important thing. Have you ever wondered why this idea of happiness was, was included in the Declaration of Independence? The founding fathers understood that we are endowed with inalienable rights to life, liberty. But the third one was, the third one includes the pursuit of happiness. But the life is, does not come with the pursuit. Liberty does not come with the pursuit of liberty. Only happiness comes with the pursuit of, liber- of happiness. Why so? Because, you see, happiness means we have to work in order to have money, in order to buy stuff, so that we can become happy. See, happiness is a byproduct of getting stuff, material stuff. When we talk about happiness, we're not talking about happy, just excited. We're talking about dopamine in our brain. There's a substance in our brain that is released whenever we reward ourselves. That's why when you have money, you buy things, it's new, you get excited. It's the release of the dopamine that makes you happy. It's not real happiness. The release of dopamine is is momentary, it's fleeting. It lasts for about five to 10 minutes, that's it. When you do drugs, it's the same thing, same effect, dopamine. It doesn't last very long. When you buy stuff, it's the same thing. It doesn't last very long. Why? Because it's not real happiness. When we say happiness, we're talking about momentary and fleeting things. See, real happiness refers to what David calls the joy of your salvation. What is the joy of your salvation? It is the status of being in the presence of God. It's a condition where we are invited back to the garden like Adam and Eve if they are invited back to the Garden of Eden. 
It's the image of Jesus having an intimate dinner with His closest disciples. That is joy of your salvation. And Jesus understood this fear so that when He was about to die, He told His disciples, I will not leave you orphans. I will send you the Holy Spirit to be your comforter. Because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate comforter. So the idea is that when David was anointed, the Holy Spirit rushed onto him because he's the one who can give him power, give him authority, and would give him the joy of salvation. The assurance that we are in the presence of God. And this same Spirit is the one that abandoned Saul when he rebelled against God. This is the same Spirit who rushed onto David. This is the same Spirit who came in the form of a dove when Jesus Christ was baptized in the River Jordan. This is also the same Spirit that the Bible said dwells in every believer who follow Jesus Christ. And this is the same Spirit also who is grieved when we sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit. Anyone say amen? But if you have the Spirit, why do you still feel empty? Why do you still feel lonely? Why do you still feel abandoned? I have a suspicion on that. The reason for that is because our focus of happiness is wrong. Your happiness is based on stuff that you get. We have another word for that. Blessings. No blessings, I'm sad. If God gives blessing, I'm happy. That is material stuff. That is, that is not joy. That's not real happiness. If your sense of happiness is based on material stuff, then that's a big problem. What, we are so hung up on blessing. When Jesus taught blessedness in Matthew chapter 5, he mentions poor in spirit, oppressed, those who seek justice, those who mourn, people who are persecuted. None of those pertain to material stuff or getting material stuff from God. Stuff that makes you excited, not really happy. Some other people's source of happiness is their spouse or significant others. If that's you, you are bound to be miserable. Why would I say that? Because no one is perfect. Yes? Not even your kind, generous husband or wife. We are not perfect. We will disappoint. We age. We have midlife crisis. We forget anniversaries and birthdays. We are not perfect. I'm sorry sometimes I forget anniversaries. Sometimes I don't even know the date. When, when, when are we married? I don't know. We're not perfect, but there's only one we know who's perfect. Jesus Christ. If our basis of happiness is a person and not Jesus Christ, we will be disappointed. But if you focus on Jesus Christ, then you will not be disappointed. All right, sidebar. We have reached a point where the gospel has become another gospel. To many people, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, God has a wonderful plan for your life, but you're a sinner, so Jesus Christ died for you so that you can realize the plan of God and become successful in life and have blessings. But that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about you becoming successful in life and having blessings from God. But you know what? Every time I tune into television, I hear big-time preachers in, in megachurches and televangelists saying, God is for you. He wants your victory. He wants your blessings. He wants your best life now. It's all about you, you, you. The gospel has become you. That's not true. 
the Bible has a different take on the gospel. I don't disagree that God wants us to be blessed. I don't disagree with that. But that's not the entire story of the gospel. Because if this is the case, then the first century disciples all failed. They did not receive the blessings. Because all the 12 disciples, they all died violently. None of them were billionaires. None of them bought properties. None of them have, you know, stocks. None of them were successful in today's standards. So if the gospel is about us achieving blessings, then it's not true for the first century believers. The gospel is not your best life now. The gospel is good news because Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. You go back to the the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel is about good news. It's good news because Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Imagine this. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then all his teachings are nothing. All his claims about divinity is nothing. All his teachings about you to be this and that means nothing. But because Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, there's good news. What that means is that death is not the end of us. There's something that we can look forward to in the afterlife. We can be resurrected from the dead. If all you have here is in this life, then it's a, it's a pity. You know, we try to work all our lives. So we go to school, we go to college, and we we do all the sacrifices, and then we go to work, and at 65, we retire. 67? 65. And you only have a couple of years to enjoy that retirement. Is that it? I mean, that's, that's a pity. If I am not looking forward to something else, it's a pity. I mean, you have a significant other, right? You have families. Wouldn't you want to meet your families in the afterlife as well? I would. See, if, if the only benefit of this lifetime is in this lifetime, that's a pity. Death is not the end. That means the resurrection is a point of our hope for the afterlife. Now, on a wider perspective, this story is about the ongoing rebellion in God's kingdom. Now, again, we said it's about the ongoing rebellion in God's kingdom that started all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You can trace it there. And the only logical thing to do for God is to kick Adam away from the Garden of Eden. And what happened next? God chose another Adam. His name now is David. David is in charge of the kingdom of God. He's the new anointed king. And what should David do that Adam failed to do? Adam failed to kick out the serpent in the Garden of Eden. David was successful. He slayed Goliath. You know, this running joke about the serpent and, and Adam, that Adam was not Chinese, because if he was Chinese, he would have eaten the snake. That was a joke. <laughs> you got that? <sighs> David is the new Adam. He fought Goliath. Goliath was the symbol and the epitome of the serpent. And there's only one goal. Verse 25. Verse 25 says, Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Now his whole entire life of 40 years is consumed by killing David, his rival, or else he will be evicted from the throne. And so verse 25 is a summary of Saul's life. Make no mistake about it, all that Saul wants 
is to kill or murder the death of the true king. But his plan backfired. You'll find it in verse 28. It says, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy, David's enemy continually. If there's anything that I, I want to share with this, with this verse, that if you are identified, or if you identify with the true king, and, and we're not talking about David, if you identify with the true king, which means Jesus, we should expect a constant opposition from the enemy. And I'm not talking about your spouse or your in-laws. <laughs> the constant opposition from the enemy, we're talking about the spiritual forces behind all these things or chaos happening in the world. You see, the Bible said in Ephesians 6 that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, against man to man. We're fighting against hidden forces in the universe, the spiritual forces. Why, why are we acting now since the COVID expired? Why are we are acting violently towards each other? You go from country to country and it's all the same. Why is there so much proliferation of violence in the world today? There's something going on behind the scenes. And I can only think of the true enemy, which means being persecuted for Christ is sort of a normal thing. We just finished the series on the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, John would say that if you are part of the church, you will be persecuted. That's for sure, 100%. So that means if we are, if the normal thing to happen in a Christian life is to be persecuted for Christ's sake, then why are we assuming that being a Christian means blessing, 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 and no persecution, 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 and no trial, trial, trial? It's all about good things, good life, blessing. We've got to change our perspective on that. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, we must be able to see that hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice should be our constant pursuit, not material stuff. That meekness is a badge of honor and not pride. That mercy and purity of heart should be our trademarks. Beloved, if we truly want a life of blessedness, we must desperately long for God's presence every day. That is daily. And if there's no, there's no shortcut for this one, you must long for God. You must desire to be with God. You must love to spend time with God. I'm, I'm not sure about you, but, you know, after life will be forever, it's be a long time, if we do not enjoy the presence of God now, how are we going to enjoy the presence of God then? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for giving us reminders from the book of Samuel, from this story of David, that the most important thing is your presence. Success are incidentals. Trials are also incidentals. Allow us, Father, to understand that all these things are not constant. Things change in our lives. We are on a journey. But the most important part of the journey is that we are with you and your presence is with us. Father, allow us to walk in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.